All right, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Beverly Kirk. I direct the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative here at CSIS, and I'm a fellow in the International Security Program. I'm thrilled and excited to be here filling in for Dan Rundy from the Project on Prosperity and Development and to welcome you all to today's event on SDG5. Uh, today's event is part of the Chevron Forum for Development series focused on the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and uh, this is all made possible because of Chevron and we thank them for their support. Uh, so far, we've hosted events on the role of the private sector, SDG 7, the Affordable and Clean Energy uh, SDG, and then SDG 16, Peace, Justice, and Strong Institutions, and SDG 17, Partnerships for the Goals. And of course, today is a focus on SDG 5, Gender Equality. We have a very distinguished panel here to talk about the challenges uh, to inclusion that women face in developing countries countries, as well as the progress that is being made toward achieving uh, gender equality and empowering women and girls. Uh, closing the gender gap in the global economy could add about $28 trillion to the global GDP uh, by 2025. The stats are courtesy of OPIC. Um, but there are inequalities to be targeted that do exist in a lot of different sectors. And one example is how women at the bottom of the income pyramid earn 30 to 50% less than their male counterparts. So with that, we will get our uh, panel discussion started. I first want to introduce the panel. And we have Zoe Dean Smith. She is Vice President, Economic Empowerment and Entrepreneurship Global Partnership at Vital Voices. Welcome. Next to her is Ambassador Mathilde Mukantabana, the Ambassador of Rwanda to the United States. Joanna Nessa Tuttle, Executive Director of the Niger Delta Partnership Initiative. And then next to her is Astri Van Dyke, Senior Counsel at Google. So we have a nice perspective of public and private non-governmental organizations here uh, to uh, 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 to talk about this issue, and we're very glad to have you here today. Uh, we will take questions from the audience. There are question cards. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, please uh, make it known to the staff in the back, and there will be cards passed around if they weren't already left on your chairs uh, so that you can ask questions. And if you are live tweeting, and we certainly hope that you are, uh, please use the hashtag CSISLive chevron forum and sdg5 if you want to follow us on twitter uh, our handles are at csis underscore usl usld and at smart women uh, we'll start with a few general questions here uh, and uh, any opening comments that you guys might like to uh, uh, to make uh, and I'll start here immediately to my uh, left with Zoe uh, with the first question what has really worked for improving global empowerment of women and girls well I think we we've heard a lot of statistics about closing the gender gap and um, how um, sort of the global GDP would improve if uh, women had more access to finance, etc. Um, I'm going to be sort of speaking from a very granular level and uh, sharing what we've learned at Vital Voices, working with more than 800 women entrepreneurs from about 80 countries around the world. One of the first things that we have learned, which is probably um, 
in direct opposite to a lot of the approaches that are being taken at the moment is that scale doesn't always work. Trying to reach tens of thousands of women isn't always a sort of a long-term sustainable solution. And so uh, we focus particularly on a deep investment in women who are running fabulous enterprises, social enterprises around the world. And we know that that's going to be a long-term investment in them and it'll have a huge positive impact in their communities. Uh, another thing uh, around the sort of accessing finance piece is that we all know that women face a, a lot more challenges than men do in accessing finance. But we kind of feel that it goes beyond um, training someone how to pitch for funding and how to develop that business plan for funding. We feel there should be more of a, a focus on operations. Once they've got that money, how do they actually manage it? How do they manage that long-term scalability and sustainability? Um, we know that women have a lot of uh, difficulties in sort of changing their mindset as they grow their businesses from being the founder of that business to becoming actually the CEO of that business. So focusing on the, the capacity building of them to run their organizations better is another great, great lesson that we've learned, that the more they know how to manage their staff, to think about succession planning, about empowering their staff complement, the, the longer that sustainable solution will be. And then also um, belonging to a network of supporting women, you know, um, providing women with the opportunity to talk about their, their business goals and challenges, but then also what, what they're facing in real life, giving that opportunity to talk about perhaps they're in a difficult marriage and is somebody else also in that same situation, feeling like they belong and they can share that kind of thing and that none of them are alone on their own, stuck in that situation is really, really helpful. Um, I think that's probably uh, a good starting a good point. Start, a good starting point. Ambassador Makantabana. It, it, okay. Thank you so much for convening this meeting. Again, um, SDGs and how we relate to SDGs uh, are a benchmark to measure what the country was doing already for the empowerment of women. Ours was intentional from the beginning. And when I talk about from the beginning, uh, there was a time our country died. So we can really mark our historical development uh, starting 25 years ago. When we started and we were trying to resurrect the country that had collapsed, uh, a million people who had died, three million people who had left, there was nothing functioning, whether it was an institution, whether it was the state, there was nothing. So when we set the vision for recovery and for reconstruction. The empowerment of women was central. It was central, but it was part of a bigger vision of empowering all the people because there was a centrality of our people to be able to recover from what happened in our country. So it was intentional. Uh, it was um, enshrined in our constitution, and it was also uh, implemented through many different measures, whether it was uh, to include women in politics, to include women in economic life, uh, to end or to fight against gender-based violence. All these things were there. But it started by really removing or trying to remove the structural barriers that were holding women away from participation. And if you look at that, for instance, if you look at our constitution in 2003, you'll find that uh, for the first time, women were included in inheritance. They were included in uh, property owning, in uh, citizenship. 
format. So there are many different things that were put first in the rigor framework and then implementation followed. And that was made possible by creating programs, educational programs, uh, economic programs, and so on and so forth. So SDGs came to help to benchmark our progress for, from this kind of global perspective. So I, I think I leave it there for now. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's such a great audience to see so many people who are interested in this topic. And Beverly, thanks to all of the work that you all have done on the SDGs. The conversation about the SDGs in Washington has really not been very robust. It's been so active in other in other governments and in other countries. And um, I would commend you all and Dan Rundy, who worked with Amina Mohammed very early on to socialize the concept around these big, sprawling, ambitious goals that were coming into being. Um, and I think this series is a really interesting way to sort of deepen that conversation and talk about how you actually pursue those goals and achieve them and, and measure them and think about them. So I'm here in two roles. I'm, I'm actually a late minutes, a last minute substitute. So I'm here representing Chevron. Um, I've, I come from a background with Chevron's corporate responsibility team and worked on developing the, our SDG strategy um, in the early days of the SDGs. But today, currently, I'm the executive director of the Niger Delta Partnership Initiative, where we have a number of programs in the Niger Delta, working with um, small, with farmers, with business service providers. We have a real focus on mainstreaming gender. So I can talk a little bit more about Chevron's and approach and NDPI's approach. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Beverly and CSIS and Chevron for organizing this. I'm really excited to be here to talk about the role of technology in particular in advancing the SDGs, which at Google we believe are very important. Um, at Google, we believe when women have equal access to information um, and opportunity, anything is possible. And women will create economic growth for themselves and also for the world. You've, you've heard the stats on GDP growth. Google's basic business is access to information. Um, hopefully you know our main product, we're a search engine. Um, and for 20 years, our mission has been to deliver relevant, reliable information. And this means that a woman in a village in Rwanda can have the same access to information that a student at Georgetown can have or at Cambridge or Oxford. And that's just completely changed the world, that access to information. Um, and in a way that we think will help women. Um, so the first way that Google approaches gender equality is through our products. Um, technology is, and the internet, for better or worse, and for many, and we believe much more better, um, is the ultimate equalizer and disruptor of traditional hierarchies. Um, it's a way for voices that have not been heard before to reach the world, for businesses to be created that could never have been created before you. Um, and so this is everything from search, YouTube, which is part of Google, but also Pinterest or um, apps where people can create businesses from their homes um, and make their voice heard. I just want to, I'm happy to talk about economic growth or many of the ways that Google uh, partners with others on digital skills and trainings and leadership and entrepreneurship, but I did want to just give two examples of how technology and the internet in particular have already been advancing the goals of uh, gender equality. The first is the Me Too movement, which I think is one of the first sort of internet movements um, of women's voices. And what's really striking about it is how global it is. And I think um, that is really due to the internet. We do a Google Trends, um, you can see how many people are searching Me Too. And consistently, 
those searches are coming up in 196 countries. People all over the world are searching this, which is just an incredible door that the internet opened to have all of these voices heard. Um, the second example I wanted to highlight is uh, something that Google did in partnership with UN Women around International Women's Day earlier this year, which is um, that we partnered with UN Women to feature 10 what we call YouTube creators. They're, uh, that's our term for the YouTube stars that have millions of followers and, um, uh, and, and monetize the content that they create on YouTube. And we chose about 10 of them with UN Women to feature to lift up the goals of the F SDGs in particular. Um, so I think that, that I wanted to start by highlighting our products, and, but there are many things with tag, whether it's payments or the App Store, YouTube to talk about, so thanks. Astri, thank you. Uh, I'm going to stay with you uh, sure. and uh, follow up uh, because you raised the issue of tech and access. But sure. there is a gender divide, a digital sure. gender divide. Can sure. you talk about that and how Google is working to yes. reduce that? Sure. It is. Um, I think that's true. I think that, as I said, it's been technology and the internet have been this great equalizer, um, but there's no question that tech is a field where whether it's the number of women working at Google or the women in computer science, the numbers are, uh, there are more men in the field um, and more, um, and, and I don't think those stats hold up for sort of men using our products, but, but in terms of the field. Um, and we have a lot of work to do on, on that uh, challenge, on closing that and making sure that our mission, which is to provide information to everyone, I mean, that's part of Google's business mission statement, that our definition of success is if our products are inclusive and benefiting everyone, um, includes, of course, are those gender goals. Our, um, we have a lot to do, in, I think, in terms of partnership. I think that there's a lot we can learn from others, um, like Vital Voices, other companies from governments. Um, I think that one of the things that we have found uh, Google started something called Made with Code. We partnered with a lot of coding organizations focused on women, um, but Made with Code was our own program to get girls to find coding fun. I actually just got back last night from Estonia where I was um, with 20 Google engineers and the U.S. State Department and the U.N. teaching high school girls from five countries, including the U.S., but also Estonia, Poland, Georgia, um, and Latvia to... Uh, to program, and one of the most striking factors we find is um, more girls go into computer science. The, the factor that gets them to go into computer science more than any other is that someone they know suggests they do it. And so that network of uh, relationships, whether that's a peer or a teacher, um, suggesting it. All of Google, and Google, Google's very good at data and very good at research, we have found consistently that is the most significant factor to get girls to enter into computer science. So the networks, um, these programs are really, have a big impact, but there is a lot of work we need to do, for sure. And one other thing I want to say about the gender divide, I mean, I think the future, what we're going to be talking about with technology in five years is we don't even know. I mean, Snapchat, we didn't know existed until a couple of years ago. We were talking about email when Google started. That's not really what we talk about anymore. I think what Google is very committed to, too, is um, what is the future of technology and what are the processes that we can build, in have in place to make sure that it benefits everyone. So artificial intelligence, which my CEO would say is going to have a bigger impact on the history of humanity than the discovery of electricity in terms of the benefits, but also the change, um, which would have tremendous health benefits, education benefits, um, that hopefully will disproportionately benefit women. But, um, but uh, that we have 
spent a lot of time on the ethics around that and having in the product design phase attention to making sure that algorithms don't discriminate, they don't reinforce hierarchies, um, and that there's a lot of work to do on that and looking ahead. Astrid, thank you. Uh, Joanna, if I can ask you to put on your Chevron hat, um, I'd like you to talk about um, Chevron's approach to gender equality and how empowering women uh, improves productivity. Stealing, I'm going to start by stealing something that we heard over lunch today, which is the fact that gender equality, it's the, the goal is not about economic empowerment, that's a piece of it, but it's much broader. And gender equality really is going to map to every single uh, sustainable development goal. So thinking about it through all of those lenses is really important. So I'll talk a little bit, I'll kind of go in layers. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about sort of Chevron as a company and what gender equality means and some of the steps underway. Um, then I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing in our communities through our partnerships and programs. And then finally, just sort of on a global basis, um, how things are looking. So Chevron as a company, I think it's important just to think about why this matters. Um, the company has really been on a journey, but taken a very renewed focus on diversity and inclusion in the workforce and in our activities. And um, the, the best explanation I can give you for that, why that's so important and why gender equality matters in that, in that rubric is that uh, if you look at how decisions are made, and I was quoting a, a, an article in the Washington Post about women on corporate boards, it came out in the business section on Sunday, talks about really the best decision making comes from the most diverse set of actors and stakeholders. If you do not have a diverse set of stakeholders around the table, you can't solve problems, you can't make, prob you can't make plans, you can't really effectively innovate your way into the next phase of your company or your business or your community. So having an increased number of women in the boardroom and women in the workforce and women's voices coming up through the pipeline is really, really critical for that reason and, and for other reasons as well. So Chevron's been um, working toward this goal. We, we have gotten increased numbers of women. So I, I would note that sort of my function around external affairs it has a lot of women. Some of the engineering functions have fewer women. So we're really looking at some of the pipeline issues around that and promoting leadership and capabilities for women. Uh, we've also looked at the other 50% of the population of, of men and uh, have marked chapters, men advocating for real change, just bringing men into the conversation as well. You cannot have an impact in a community if you leave out half of the, the population. So bringing everybody together to talk about what that change looks like and to be um, supportive of those, those changes and that impact. Um, then moving to the community, a, a big issue really is a pipeline. I, I think what you're saying, Astri, about Finding out from someone about a tech career is a really critical driver for getting into a career for young women. So Chevron's been a very, very active supporter of STEM education, especially in the United States, as well as Thailand and Kazakhstan and other countries where we operate. But um, TechBridge Girls and other partnerships are really focusing on women in the engineering pipeline. And we also have women's economic empowerment initiatives in Latin America, in Myanmar, um, and looking at build, building women into our programming and in the Niger Delta Partnership Initiative, uh, where, where I'm spending my time now, we have gender mainstream across all programs. And I can talk a little bit more about that maybe in a follow-up question, what that looks like and how we charted that path and how we stay on that path. Uh, and then finally, from a global level, um, just I think we're trying to foster a dialogue and advocate for continued dialogue. We've got a partnership that Google's also um, part of 
are called Women Rule. It's a partnership with Politico to really advance a conversation about women's issues and women's initiatives. And we try to participate in, in initiatives like that to really focus on community programs, but then also a policy and a broader level dialogue because pushing these conversations forward and having more voices involved is a really critical part of seeing those goals take hold. So I'll, I'll pass that to maybe to the ambassador next. Yes, Ambassador Makantabana, talk, uh, expound upon that. But I also want to raise another question with you. Uh, I'm sure lots of people in the audience, both here and online, uh, are aware that Rwanda's parliament is more than 50% women. Uh, and that's quite an accomplishment. Uh, that hasn't happened in, in many uh, more established uh, Western countries. Uh, how, how did that happen? Uh, and uh, what are some lessons that can be taken from what Rwanda has been able to do? Thank you so much again. Uh, and it's true, um, Rwanda, I think, is the highest now in the women representation in the parliament. And for us, again, uh, I have to go to the political philosophy of people-centered politics that started 25 years ago, that oh, we have to account and be accountable to our people. So uh, one of the things I, I needed to say is uh, there are three things. One is that representation is essential. People have to be seen and heard. And women have to be on forum for women issues to be promoted. You can't talk about women equality when other people, when they are not on the table. And for that to happen, they have to be represented, they have to be in positions when they are able to push the agenda, not just for to come in a conference and then leave and we talk about women and so on and so forth. But for us, again, uh, it was a historical development, but at the same time also to show this was not uh, granting any power based upon Quora. There are two things that came together. Number one, there was a political will to do so. It was enshrined in our constitution. It was in our political philosophy. It was on the vision for the country. If you read the vision 2020, that was uh, a blueprint on how Rwanda was going to develop. You find the centrality of women empowerment. So it was there already. So the rest was also that those women were working. They were expanding their own sphere of influence because of what they were doing. They were effective. And it started by just going from the simplest, even just holding a nation together that was bleeding in very different circumstances. I can give you one example. Uh, if you look at one of the most important association in Rwanda, the Association for Widows of Genocide, most of them, you know, who have HIV, but they have a very strong organization because we said, you are not going to die. We need to tend to communities. We need to look in the eyes of the children of rape, love them, reconcile them, and they are part of a community. So it went through hardship, but they performed, and they kept our country together. So it's not their agents. The women were agents throughout. They were not subjects where, where the power came to them. But at the same time, you find that kind of, uh, you know, really uh, harmonized way of uh, blending political will 
plus what women were doing themselves. So he expanded. Yeah, we can always go to see how we got it to 64%, then we got it to 61%, then initially we started with 30%, but women were performing very well. And there was a generation, and when we talk about women, and someone raised it during our lunch, about also talking about men. Men also are expanding in their understanding there's a new generation in our country that understands that women empowerment benefits everyone. It's not just for women, it's not for the benefit of women, it's for the benefit of the community, for the economy, for anything that you are talking about. So it's a comprehensive. And before I move to Zoe, I just want to follow up on the point that both you and Joanna made about men as allies. Yeah. Uh, do, do the conversations about women's economic empowerment or women's empowerment in general and gender equality, um, how do you help men understand that it's not about leaving them out? It's about including women. For, for, uh, do you want to begin? <laughs> I didn't mean to stump anyone with that question. No, no, but, but for us, uh, once, number one, there are two things. Once you see that the people are performing, quite frankly, the, the, the second, uh, like last time in our uh, parliamentary elections, the people who elected those women were men also. So it's because they saw the performance, and the performance has been a very positive performance. If, for instance, with the 30% of women in empowerment, they had done a miserable job for development, for whatever they are doing. They were not going to increase in the numbers because it was not based upon a quota. It was by elections. In villages, I mean, it went from the, the local village all the way to, to provinces and then to government, to national government. So all these people, but, but also there's a, a mind shift that has happened in our country. One that the, the children, whether they are male or female who are raised on the lap of those women who are strong, who are doing what they are supposed to be doing. Once they go and do things, they are not going to think this is a woman, this is a man. They look at someone who is doing something for their communities. <clears throat> so there, there have been, uh, I think once, uh, number one, there's that will to do so, intention. Once you, you codify it, you put it in, a, in the legal framework, the implementation starts. And once it starts, then it starts also to change a certain mindset. It's also about teaching. It's about teaching because nowadays, uh, as I said before, maybe, uh, I don't know if it's this place or not, but we've uh, institutionalized many of what we call homegrown solutions. Homegrown solutions that are universal in value, but that have been domesticated for Rwanda consumption. So pe people can have ownership. So you feel part of that if you, you follow your culture, you are doing it within the framework of, of uh, a, you know, a forum or, or, or uh, a place where you can perform and you feel yourself. That's what we have done. So we have a number of what we call homegrown initiatives that have been also put in the books. If you want to go, there's what they call Rwanda Cooperative Initiative. Now being studied by some of the institution, academic institution here in the US. So those are stuff where we put, whether it's about our reconciliation, about our women, about uh, the justice system, the traditional justice system, all those stuff that have made Rwanda what it is today. So that's why I'm saying it's a comprehensive program and you can't really separate one from the other. Yeah. 
We, I like your term performance. I think that's a really critical term because I think that we shouldn't be trying to train people or change a, a situation based on desires, but really on performance and competitiveness. And, and so, you know, partnerships with, like our partnerships with TechBridge or, or Project Lead the Way, it's really about making women competitive because we want to compete and we want people, we want the best people in jobs. And it's, we know that many of the, many more of those people may be women and should be women. Um, I'll just share a personal story from my own career. I benefited tremendously from the mentorship of about four men who all were about 10 years older than me. They all worked at CSIS when I was here and they all reached in and challenged me to be bigger and better than I ever thought I could. And every single one of them had, it was married to a woman who was phenomenally talented hugely talented and I think that they just were very generous with their spirit and their advice in in looking at other women that they think they thought could really advance and grow in their careers and so I, I just want to always advocate for the, the role that every single person can play by seeing someone who can be better than what they're doing or who can be challenged and taking that time to work with them to help them perform better to help them deliver better help them be more competitive those are really critical qualities in terms of achieving gender equality. Thank you, Joanna. Zoe, uh, a couple of follow-on uh, follow, up, uh, follow -on questions uh, for you. Vital Voices has been in this space for many, many years doing absolutely great work. Um, how, uh, what steps should be taken to overcome some of the barriers? And uh, over lunch, we talked about some of the barriers that exist, uh, and uh, everyone here has mentioned uh, 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 different types of barriers that women can face, whether it's uh, access to capital, whether it's uh, cultural or legal barriers uh, mm -hmm. in, in some societies that, are, uh, 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 that women face. Uh, but what do you do? to kind of overcome those barriers and without, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, I guess stepping on the toes of the culture, for lack of a better way to, to, put, to say that uh, uh, in terms of making sure women are empowered. Well, my, my brain has been going in overload as I've been listening to this conversation. And uh, I wanted to touch on one of the things Joanna just said, which is about um, the importance of having role models, mentors, champions is hugely important. And every time we interview really successful women leaders and ask them about how they got to that place, a lot of it has been driven by people that gave them a greater belief than they had in themselves. So that, I think for me, having people who do also inspire inspirational role models is a huge piece. Um, and then on the sort of the more practical uh, level, we've talked about accessing finance. And I think a challenge for uh, women entrepreneurs is that we know that they, they, they face more challenges in accessing finance than men. And we also know that um, if, they, if it was easier to access finance, they would go into larger, uh, more, uh, broader sectors than they do at the moment. So that's one sort of real great consideration. So if I had a magic wand, it would be that. It would be lower those entry, entry barriers. Um, a second one is, is going back to what I said earlier, is about focusing on sort of long-term capacity building is a, is a huge sort of like um, success factor. If, if you want long-term sustainability and really impacting on 
um, positive outcomes for different countries. It's about that, taking that approach rather than a, like a, a light touch, we'll come and do something with you for a day. We'll bring together 500 micro entrepreneurs for one day of training and then magic, you know, it all happens. It doesn't happen like that. So uh, it would be shifting that focus. We talked um, earlier about um, a couple of really practical granular things. One of them is things like having flexible work hours, which uh, not enough um, focus is, is placed on. And then um, safety, getting into the workplace, to and from work, and then within the workplace. And uh, an example that I can share is a fabulous woman from India, Elsa De Silva, who created an app called Safe City, where um, women have the opportunity to report harassment in the, in the streets in India. And what has happened is she's partnered with the local uh, police force and local municipalities. And so they've been able to sort of highlight those key areas where there is a lot of harassment going on. And the local municipalities have improved the street lighting, they've put in more policing, etc. And it's just making for a better environment. So there are a lot of options like that. Another one that we've, we've heard talked about quite a lot is childcare, childcare at work those kinds of things where um, a lot can still be done. And um, a great example I can give is of one of uh, our fabulous participants from a program we did in Japan who has a childcare uh, business. And what she's done is she's provided childcare centers along railway routes so that women can drop their kids off on their way to work and pick them up on the way back. They don't have to go out of the way to get there. So there's some really sort of granular solutions to how some of those challenges can be overcome. And it's important to think about these granular challenges because they really can stand in the way of a woman who maybe has a couple of kids being able to go and get the job or yeah. start her own company. Yeah. And the Japan example is a great yeah. is, is a great one in terms of addressing, okay, yeah. I wanna maybe I wanna start my own business or I wanna get a job. Yeah. What do I do with my kids? Well, there's a daycare that yeah. I can drop them off yeah. on my way. And if you think about like childcare in the workplace, I mean, the, the statistics that come out of that of sort of like staff retention, improved happiness in the workplace. I mean, that's such a great measure, isn't it? Like, I don't have to worry. I can be here, I can be stress-free knowing that my whole family is cool and I can actually do my job is so important. And the safety aspect that you mentioned, knowing that you can get to and from uh, your place of work in a safe manner. Has, yep. to be, has to be incredibly- Critical around the world. Around the world, around the world. Um, how should the US government, this is a general question so anyone can uh, take it, how should the US work with multilateral institutions and other governments worldwide uh, to work toward uh, gender equality? Anybody wanna give advice to the governments? Advice? <laughs> <laughs> to the private sector? Astrid? Of course, I mean, I think that the U.S. government should be investing more in computer science education um, and STEM education, and I think um, that's just a national imperative for security reasons, for economic reasons, for development reasons. So uh, I think artificial intelligence, like I said, is the future, and it's not just Googles and traditional tech companies, it's banks, it's um, agriculture firms, it's oil and gas companies are becoming tech companies. If you look at the number of S&P, 500 companies who I think it's 70% of them identify themselves as technology companies. So I think preparing um, the future 
workers, students, leaders to compete in that environment. Um, and that has to start with early childhood education, go through the high, higher ed, and then, and then the transition, I think supporting the transition to the digital economy with skills training. Um, and this is more sort of maybe for the, certainly in the US this needs to happen, but in the developing world as well, um, making sure in this transition that everyone is included and positioned to thrive uh, in the new economy. I thank you for what you said because that's what I was going to say because, uh, no, no, in a sense you said it better because for me uh, it was more a wishful thing to continue what the U.S. has done in terms of partnerships because most of the thing we do, uh, like my country is big into technology and most of the technological advances that we have promoted, most of them came from the United States. So like I give you an example, uh, revolutionizing our medicine, uh, our country is Healy and uh, we, we just started to use the zip line to deliver blood. That was done through the collaboration with the United States. In our agriculture, you know, uh, one of the, the biggest uh, problems we have in terms of uh, uh, financial inclusion and, and then really empowering women, the majority of women who live in rural areas, it's because of sometimes lack of technology. Now there's the e-agriculture that is also being promoted where people can sell their products, they can exchange, you can also do many different things. So it's to, to increase that partnership. I think that for us, that would be the best thing to, uh, if I give uh, any advice to United States. And I should mention that uh the U.S. government's WGDP initiative that was launched earlier this year, $50 million uh, this year, has three pillars that focus on women's entrepreneurship, access to capital, and removing legal barriers. So that's an initiative that is aimed at empowering women uh, uh, around the globe. Um, while we have this pause moment, I want to remind everyone that we are coming to you for questions. So if you do not have a card and would like to ask a question, please raise your hand and uh, we'll get those cards handed out and then uh, we'll collect them and uh, ask, your, uh, ask your questions. And I'm glad to see that there are many people who have questions. That's excellent. Uh, while that's going on, um, I, I also want to ask about uh, uh, because we touched on it, but we didn't take a, a, a deep enough dive, but cultural differences, behaviors, discrimination, uh, those are all barriers to women uh, uh, in, the, in the gender equality conversation. Uh, can we take a deeper dive on, the, on those issues and how they're best overcome? Because you don't wanna be the person that goes into a country to say, hey, hey I'm here to promote gender equality and yet you do things that step on the culture of a country. And, and Madam Ambassador, you talked about homegrown solutions. What's, homegrown, uh, what's a homegrown solution in Rwanda may be very different in another country. So can we talk about how you deal with that? And I know Vital Voices works in many countries around the world and has to deal with this issue. Uh, one thing I, I can tell you is uh, Really, we can't talk about like traditional, traditional culture like we used to because internet and, and uh, the exchange, the global exchange and the globalization have changed all these things. I can tell you that whatever is done in Hollywood, my people know. 
the next day. So there's a certain harmonization of culture that actually when people talk about culture, it's to try to hold on to certain things, remnants. But in essence, you are finding people who are, you know, whether you call it good or bad, but who think the same. Sometimes the value system has come there. Uh, you know, uh, people more and more don't understand the context people are in. Because the judgment is always a cross board because of that kind of exchange of information. Right. That goes even in remotest villages. I, I used to, to go to one place in my country uh, before they even got the television. They had uh, pictures of Michael Jackson and the music. So that's what that's culture. Mm -hmm. So there is something that has permeated the space, the international space, where we talk. Even if I want to hold on to certain cultural practices, it's because I know it will work. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that if you come as a partner, as an American partner, I won't understand your difference and take it into consideration. Or if a king of Japan or an emperor of Japan comes with their own strong, you know, we do business with them, but mm -hmm. each understand. Uh, and this is why even with dialogue is good when people come and talk about it. Even our homegrown solutions, and we have, uh, I can give you two, two examples and I do quickly. Like, Uganda, Uganda, that has helped our country to be rebuilt is a collective work. But it appeals to people when they go, you know, to clean the environment, to make, to be proud of that. It has underlying value of what we call agachiro. Agachiro is dignity and self-worth. That's it. Like you, you say, you know, I, I'm not going to ask if you say what is the, the biggest thing or, or the Americans find themselves into. Maybe you see democracy and so on that underlying value that we call agachiro, the self-worth of an individual is the, the bottom line, self-respect. So that helps us to say we need to clean our area. It doesn't have to be that you are rich, that you got a million dollars to be able to pick up the, the stuff on those. So it's embedded and it has been used in socioeconomic arena also to develop the country. If you don't have a road, there are certain stuff you can do yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't need to, to wait for somebody coming from a board to come and build a road or a school or, or something. So those are the things, are the value. It's a value system that I think is universal once you explain it to that. But the hardest was how women were perceived, for instance, traditionally. There were certain jobs they couldn't do. You know, in the time of my mother, she couldn't climb on a ladder. But because of the changes, some of them were driven by reality and the necessity. Now they are doing the jobs of constructions. They are the ones flying our airplane. So some of it has been removed because of reality and what they needed to do. But other things we had to be intentional. To say women are as capable as men and the training and uh, women in STEM program and, you know, to be really aware that women were left behind before and to be able to include them in, in, in those kind of programs and to do those. Astrid? Yeah, thanks for the question. I wanted to just cite one example um, that Google has found to be successful um, in India, which is a train-the-trainer model. To mm -hmm. your question about um, how to be respectful of the culture that you're coming into, and this we did with partners, but we um, went to villages. It's called the Internet Sati program, um, and uh, had 
we've now trained 23 million women who then go in 100,000 villages and then go take the digital skills and they become the trainers in their community. Um, and this has been a very, very successful program for us. Mm. We have a number of questions for the audience, but I just want to uh, clarify on the question that I asked about culture. I was thinking more of in places where there are legal restrictions against right. women right. owning land mm -hmm. um, or, or that type of thing. Okay. How do you get beyond those kinds of barriers? Zoe? Well, <laughs> actually, we don't really uh, work focus on that in, in our our work in the economic empowerment space at Vital Voices, so I don't feel like I'm the best placed person <laughs> to answer that. However, one of the things that um, I do think is important is uh, in the work that we do is to even, um, in terms of growing the leadership abilities of women entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. often we talk about those barriers that they face, and I think part of the success of success could be sort of building the capacity of women to become advocates for change so mm -hmm. that they join their local business women's associations and they add their voice to get that legislation changed. So that's one mm -hmm. way that we have done it in a kind of indirect way, but mm -hmm. I can't give you any other practical solutions there. All right. I have, I'm going to start with a Okay, that's a great question. And before I answer the question, I do want to pick up on the role model point again. Um, it's just part of sort of a broad global dialogue. Chevron had a really cool campaign called Thank Your Role Model. Hmm. And you could just do a video of like, I want to thank my teacher, Miss Betts, for all the things you challenged me to do in third grade, and you really helped me succeed. So I think it's really cool. It's online if you want to take a look at it. It kind mm -hmm. of goes to that conversation. So I. Th I governance structure, it probably wouldn't happen naturally. So we really needed to learn to build that in. And that's happened to, to a degree in Nigeria as well. And I can give you two examples. So Chevron has a set of activities right in um, um, operational communities, and they, they're run by these governance structures called regional development committees. So those have to build in board membership and make sure that women are on the board and involved in those decision making. It has to be done very intentionally. Um, my organization, NDPI, also had to be very intentional about our gender mainstreaming and how we did that. So five years ago, when we were launching our, our new five-year strategy, um, the, the team got together and set sort of a vision for what does gender mainstreaming look like? What does, what does that mean to us as an organization? And what do we aspire to do? And set that strategy and that vision. This is all online on, on the website, pinfoundation.org. And from there, every program had to build in 
gender into their work. So our economic development program is focused primarily on farming and, um, and business, businesses around farming. So building women into those interventions and activities Peace building, of course, is always going to rely on women because women are very um, active and innovative peace builders and peace networkers. So women were really built into that, into all of the programming. You know, we had to think about how to build women in and make sure that we were achieving the, that vision that we set. And then we had to look at how staff was trained and make sure that, that the training reflected always making that consideration. So you're never excluding men but you're also making an intentional effort to include both men and women into those program activities. And staff underwent training and, and sort of came through with their own philosophies personally for how they were gonna do that. And then uh, every year that effort is recognized, it's measured, it's marked on a, on a regular basis to see how the organization is doing. So it, it depends a little bit on the actual location in the community and the types of activities. But overwhelmingly, Chevron does do in our social activities and community activities, there's a lot of agriculture. And since so many smallholder farmers are women, um, it, it, it tends to be a pretty ripe area for engaging and including a, a gender lens as well. I hope that is helpful. Mm -hmm. I'll start with that AI. Thanks for the question. Um, what Google has done, and it, it took about two years, was we um, set out our own AI principles um, for product design. And it took two years because um, it was very controversial internally, a lot of different stakeholders, a lot of, um, we got some external input as well um, on how to, to um, both put sort of ethical guardrails around the future of our products, but also make sure that we, um, since we don't know what is ahead for technology, that we weren't um, sort of holding our hands too tightly behind our backs. Um, and so those principals have a committee across the company that is very active in terms of every every new product or launch, is they're involved in that, um, in sort of the screening to make sure that the principles we've upheld, what we've set out for ourselves that we um, upheld. And one example is for Google has decided not to um, undertake facial recognition technology. Um, this is a new thing for many law, law enforcement love this. Um, it's gonna really, uh, help them. Um, there are a lot of uh, the hospitality industry actually in some developing countries, they could, you could walk into a hotel and they'll know what room you're in and what you, uh, what you like to eat and what, and so from facial recognition. We have, because we feel like the ethical conversations around this and um, haven't, aren't sort of caught up with the technology have paused that and are not pursuing that. Um, so that's just one example for our products. But there's no question, um, there's a lot we need to do. I mean, Google makes a copy of the internet every day and 25% of the searches, I'm sorry, 15% of the searches we get every day are new, searches that we've never had before. So um, uh, making sure that we are upholding our mission of bringing the world's information, but also um, not having that perpetuate hierarchies or discrimination. Uh, one thing, for example, we take out of autocorrect. Um, if you ever go on Google search and sometimes it will start filling in, um, there 
there are examples uh, of where you put someone's name and then criminal would come up. And there were certain names that were and more associated with that. And so now we have, it's, you can never, it will never autofill criminal for certain people. So that, that's just something that we would, we would change um, uh, product-wise. On the first question, making tech accessible to women in um, emerging markets and developing markets, um, I mean, I think one of the examples that I, I wanted to cite was the Saatchi program we have in India where we've trained 23 women 23 million women in 100,000 villages. So I think the buckets of how we look at um, making sure women are thriving in the digital economy, in particular in what we call NBU, next billion users, those markets are, are four buckets. One is around digital skills. Um, and so making sure uh, there's the basics of how to use the internet, how to get online, how to be safe online. Um, entrepreneurship is the... Uh, is the next bucket, so helping women start their own businesses. And um, there's tremendous opportunity to do that. I mean, one of the greatest things about the internet is there is the ability to work from home, um, which is just transformative for women who don't have childcare. Um, or many women, like I said earlier, on Etsy or Pinterest are starting businesses from their homes. Um, the third is leadership training, so uh, having examples and role models. Um, I wanted to just, uh, and the fourth I is, um, mentoring in communities. I mean, in my, there's been a lot of talk about mentors, which I appreciate. In my own career, what I found to be the most impactful have been peer mentors, actually. Um, much more impactful than anyone sort of above me uh, pulling me up. I mean, that, if that happens, that's great. But I think that the, especially as I get more senior in my career, what's absolutely critical is both women and men as peers looking out for each other. You should be in that meeting. You should know about that email. You should speak on that panel. You should, um, uh, you should be involved in this project. And that's just a critical part. And so that network is the fourth pillar in emerging markets that we focused on. We have a question for the ambassador. Uh, I think you've touched on this topic, but it's uh, asking if you would please share stories about how uh, uh, how Rwanda developed a gender equal culture. And you, you mentioned how it sprang up after and in the wake of the genocide when women were forced to do jobs that perhaps they hadn't done before and participate in ways that they hadn't done before because it was basically out of necessity. Right. Um, one of, thank you so much for the question. It's a, it, Again, maybe I can start by saying that from the get-go, even before genocide, within the philosophy, we have our political philosophy empowers women. Because we have a long history I can't go back to, but before genocide, we were also refugees. I was a refugee myself, but as we were trying to become a nation again, we also, women started to be very active. I mean, even if you look at the associations we created before genocide, most were promoted by women. So women had a political efficacy even before uh, we started to build the nation. So what I'm saying now, with then necessity came in. There was, we couldn't afford to say we can ignore more than half of our population when we didn't have much to go with. Number one, uh, even if you can describe a population, sometimes Really, when you go to the bottom is when you understand it, because we were in a hopeless and helpless situation. Hopeless and helpless. Sometimes we actually have a discussion when people say, how come was the government doing this or, or 
private sector. I say what to private sector. There were no people who could do anything. We needed to almost try to mend out of nothing. So it means that most of it, we imagine it and we created it, but from a good perspective by saying we are going to empower all the people. So what I was saying that maybe we can go back is, uh, and, and I know that sometimes when people talk about the quota or a quota system, uh, most people see it all the time as a bad thing or a good thing or a judgment. But women were nowhere to be seen in representation, even though they were the ones who were there, there as a workforce. So we needed to say, in every area where there's where someone has to make a decision, women have to be present. That was the decision that was made. But they went beyond that perception of saying 30% have to be in a position of power. Before it was 30% in the constitution, but as I said, as they worked, uh, because it was implemented from national government all the way to village uh, level and, and cell. So eventually when they started to vote and looking at how people were doing it, both men and women were voting. You know, you presented your candidacy and they voted for you. Not because you've proven what you can do for the community, your platform you are putting out there was uh, amenable to really being erected on. So that's why I was saying that women also were pushing for their own influence by doing. They, they executed their task in a way that was according for that. And because they learned from hardship and resilience and trying to mend the society, you know, sometimes uh, I give you one a quick example because uh, even now we have a generation of young people who are products of rape. Products of rape. A generation now that is 25 years. You can imagine when we said that Rwanda is a nation, like many countries in Africa, but below the majority of our people are below 30 years old. They are below 30. These are the people who are tomorrow are going to, to build uh, our country and to take the baton and run with it. But so we put a lot of energy in teaching our youth and that was done mostly by women. Who were the casualty most of the time? Who were the, the ones who were raped? But they had to look in the eyes of their children and say, we love you, you are our Rwandan people. Even though they are the expression of the victimizer. So those are stuff that, and in Rwanda you find those stories everywhere, every single place. It's not just like one case. 600,000 women were raped. And we have a whole product, we have the products. So what I'm saying, if you are resilient enough to be able to reconcile a society where you are trying to bring people together and to form a society that is productive, because we could have become a permanent uh, you know, under the protectorate of UN or a failed state, and people could have understood. But what we said was we move forward with grain and chaff, but we're mending a society. And I think women, by doing that, they open their own sphere of political space, economic space, and then our leadership also understood that importance. That's how I can see it. It's on a philosophical basis, not, but I can tell you how they did it in various uh, elections. I don't think that would make it justice because people would think it's just a figureheads of women. No, these women have gotten the place on the table because they worked for it. It's not something that... Uh, There's a, a question here about uh, norm changing and it follows on 
uh, I think a bit about what you've just stated from your perspective, what roles do governments, NGOs, nonprofits, and the private sector have to play in norm changing? Right. right. Yeah. Does anyone want to take that, that question on? You know, the, the good thing, for instance, in my country, I can't really minimize all, all we do and how far we have gotten. It's because of, of facilitation from our partners. You know, they came, they looked at where we were, they looked at the vision we had, and then they helped us to be there. So I can't, even though we are talking about what Rwanda is doing, but you can't remove, for instance, you know, vital partnerships. You know, whether they are, you know, because those are the, the ones who allow yourself to do it. Uh, one example, um, most people were dying from AIDS. So even though genocide ended, but people were dying by, you know. If we didn't get the PEPFAR from here, really we wouldn't be talking even about economic development because it came, it looked at how we were using resources and how we were able to, we are fighting even to survive and now, you know, within 10, 20 years, we've added the 25 years of life expectancy. So we do well in, in health because of those partnerships. We do well in women empowerment because people came and were able also to take the programs that women are involved in and were able to be like, uh, uh, you know, those people who are cheering them on, who are saying it's, it's happening, but also who can help, both logistically, but also even financially speaking from that, yeah. Sorry? So I'm going to bring it back to a granular level again and give an example. Um, one of the women that we work with from Peru, her name is Claudia Esparza, and she has a business where she, um, she helps families find domestic workers. And one of the things that she's done in changing norms is she started changing the way that those women are referred to, and I don't speak Spanish, so please, uh, I apologize for how I may pronounce this. She started using the phrase asistente del hogar. Is that right? Anyone speak Spanish? I do not speak Spanish. Yes. <laughs> Did that sound correct? Okay. And, and it means home assistance. So referring to the people working in homes as home assistants, which brought them a lot of dignity. So that's one woman running an employment agency who's got the whole country to change the way they refer to domestic workers. So it can be done. Uh, here's a question, uh, uh, and I don't know if your organizations will have uh, a perspective on it, but uh, I wanna ask the question, what kind of agenda, if any, does your organization have for advancing the LGBTQ uh, movement, and how do you see that contributing to advancing gender equality overall? I, I don't have the specific statistics with me, but Chevron has a long-standing um, commitment to equality and to LGBT rights. Um, and we have had, a, a, I think, a perfect score with the human rights campaign for many, many years. This is a, this is a critical part of um, Chevron's commitment to diversity and inclusion. There's actually quite a bit on our website if you want to look at it. I don't have the stats in front of me, but there is quite a bit on our website. So it's, it's a critical part of what we're doing. Astrid? Yeah, I can add. I mean, it's it's a huge commitment that Google has made into the LGBTQ community. And it's, um, like I said earlier, it's from our products, um, but also um, taking care of our employees and our employee base. I think we're probably the best in class on benefits for the LGBTQ community. I just got married and tried to change my last name. And um, the ways 
the, trying to find internally at Google how to change your name because of you getting married was extremely hard to do because there was so much information about if you were changing your gender, um, which I think speaks to how much of a sort of mainstream on the HR front um, issues for this community uh, are taken seriously. Okay, another question from the audience. How do you combat issues like FGM in communities where the actual act or process is conducted by other women in the community? Uh, you are looking at me, but... <laughs> Actually, I... I was just looking for anyone who might want to take that question on because, because it's a I difficult to, one. Uh, you know, we, we don't practice that in my country, but uh, at the same time, I think, again, people have really to be careful to understand the cultural norms. Sometimes we, you know, because the definition can also be uh, out of context. Sometimes what, there are places where it's, a, it's a definitely like a violation and uh, mutilation. There are other people who do it as a cultural practice, you know, as a rite of passage. So, but sometimes it has been put together in many mixture. I don't judge societies. Societies have to become ready. They have to become ready. But the, the thing is, if there are one thing that can, can happen if it's really demeaning to women and, and so on and so forth, I've found many women, even in the most traditional societies, where women have been in the forefront of ending the practice, where they, they are doing it against uh, this and that. But the more, once the, the voices can be amplified by people who can help by giving forum, by doing this and that. But uh, as I say, again, when it's a country based and women doing that, it's not very surprising because people embrace their culture for better or worse. For better or, you know, the, the cultural norms, even when they are oppressive to one group, doesn't necessarily say it's uh, the other group practicing it because it goes for a long time and then people come to embrace it as the norm. But as I said again with the advent of globalization, most of these things are dying because of the younger generation. Younger gener generation that they travel. Uh, I know quite a few who are in this country who go back to their country to, do, to undergo that particular practice because it's so embedded. So it has to, I never believe that any revolution comes uh, outside for any country. All we can do is to initiate a dialogue and then people within can own it. Otherwise, it will be uh, something that is not sustainable. You know, sustainability is the key. People have to own their own progress. Even when you are helping, if you go to a place where you don't get to the people to own what you are bringing on the table, it won't be sustainable and sustained. Uh, a question about the uh, recent passing of the ILO Convention 190, violence and harassment in the world of work. How do you see public-private partnerships or governments utilizing tools like this in correlation with SDG 5 in order to address the issue of gender-based violence and harassment in the workplace? I'll, I'll just um, state, you know, that I think having, I, I've always believed that American companies are ambassadors of American values and having uh, anti-harassment policy is, is critical in an American workforce and in any workforce. So 
making sure that you're following those policies in your own U.S. workforce and then ensuring that your global workforce also follows similar policies, whether or not they're the law, is really a, a benefit of having that influence of a U.S. company. A uh, question about the WGDP efforts to remove barriers in it and in accessing capital and land ownership and inheritance and the ability to open accounts, what other barriers uh, can the private sector leverage within their employee benefits to help empower uh, women, either working with the U.S. or a host government? Any thoughts on that? Uh, yes, uh, or how the private sector can leverage employee benefits uh, to uh, remove barriers uh, such as uh, land ownership, inheritance, access to, or the ability to open accounts. And I hope uh, the I hope I got the essence of the question here from the person who submitted it. I know I, I don't I just don't have enough knowledge about the employee benefits process to really link those yeah. two together. So. I, 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 I can't offer any great ideas now, but it sounds like a worthy conversation for, for further discussion. Okay, we'll move on to the next question yeah, from well, the. Sorry, I can oh, say one thing, which I think is I think that the public private. I, I don't. I mean, in the example of employee benefits in particular, I think I'm not exactly sure how to answer, but I think that the the general question. There's public-private partnership that I go back to the example of India with their um, Aadhaar, their sort of biometric ID, which is allowed for. Um, uh, payments to be made, welfare payment, payments, state payments to be made to families um, electronically, which um, cash has been a traditional, um, uh, the traditional way to get those benefits, which has been for women, oftentimes they don't get to control the cash and it's taken from them and if it's kept in their home. So um, that was the government, not necessarily the private sector, but the private sector makes the technology to make that possible. So that's an example where public and private can come together. I read where uh, the use of mobile money is is uh, something that's really important because the woman can be paid and the payment is gets, she gets control over the, of control, the money yeah. uh, with through her mobile phone and yes. no one else can access it. Yes, exactly. Uh, we have a, a, a couple of questions here uh, about uh, women being barriers to other women getting ahead. Uh, if you guys have any comments on that, and then. A question that I think is specifically to the ambassador. Uh, it's uh, talking about uh, the issue of quotas, and Rwanda's uh, parliament set a quota of 30%, but how that is the issue of quotas are frowned upon in the United States. And you did mention uh, numbers earlier, but uh, um, the question is do you think that it's a valid argument that if it's a quota, people won't advance based on merit? And should governments actually, I, I, I overlook the second part of the question, should all governments implement a gender quota in order to improve gender equality? Quite frankly, I think it's a, it's a by, it's in a different context. Mm -hmm. But if, if the, there are people who are removed from the political space or anything, mm -hmm. because of traditions, because of many other different things, Sometimes you need to, and you know, the, no one, even in that so-called Kora, I, I wish I could find another word that is not uh, That's loaded. not perhaps so yeah, loaded? so loaded, yeah, because it's what we are saying. We are looking at people who are traditionally not really on the table. 
because of many different things, because of traditions, because of you know lack of education, because of anything. So it was a comprehensive program to say, because we have to account to all the people, they all need to come and uh, get whatever is lacking, whether it's education, whether it's empowerment through the uh, economic thing, but also to be the advocates for those stuff happening. You know, you, one of the things that I, I find always lacking sometimes is that even in, in peace agreements, like in international peace agreements, in many forum you go to, international, I'm not talking about yet, but you hardly find women talking about the peace. And most of the time, the people who studied war are the ones talking about the peace as well. But the women are nowhere to be found. Their voices needed to be, you know, because the representation is big. You know, when we talk about representation, sometimes we take it for granted. If you come and say women are equal to men, but you hardly see any women on the table, it doesn't mean anything. You know, they have to be seen, numbers have to, it's not about numbers. For us, they could have become 35% and be happy if they were performing. For us, they went beyond because of what we said also women did other than just coming in that really percentage given to them and then now we are moving. It's because they perform. But sometimes without being intentional, giving that uh, space, they never come to see, to, even to, to be able to perform, to compete, to do whatever is there. So sometimes for us, our community, and you have also to understand one other thing. For us, we are called developing nations. Maybe a quota will be badly seen in a country that is developed. That I would maybe say, these people have gotten all the economic opportunities, but we are trying to empower all our people within that market economy, within the international you know, sector. We are people who used to be like uh, subsistence economic, uh, economic people. Now we are at a point where we are competing. We are leapfrogging in many different areas. We are into technology. We are into many different things. But we find also that if we don't do certain things, and especially open the door to many people who were traditionally kind of kept out, it will never happen. So it's intentional. It's political will. It's a, it's a, you know, a political philosophy that we adopted. That is paying dividends. Now. We are at a point where people can move on their own and actually guys are being mentored by women to be in that type of thing. But uh, so, yeah. Astrid, you were going to I'm just going to say, I mean, whether it's a strict quota um, or uh, a pledge, I think is really exciting. The new president of the European Commission, who's a woman for the first time, Ursula von der Leyen, has pledged to have at least half of the new commissions, the executive branch of the EU's leadership be women. And she's on a pledge uh, to do that, which is really exciting. It's very exciting. Uh, to follow up, you mentioned peace building and the, the lack of women at the table. We have a question here from the audience. Uh, if you can, or any of you can speak to the relationship between gender equality and security and peace building. I mean, it's, I can speak to security online in the sense that this is something that tech companies need to take extremely seriously. There's tremendous opportunity for women's voices to be heard, but just like the real world, there's tremendous opportunity for women to be exploited. So um, something that Google has done is use our own technology in cooperation with law enforcement and partners to, for example, prevent um, sex trafficking or ch child pornography or women's pornography. I mean, to make sure that there's not um, 
content that is illegal that is not on our platforms and that they are not uh, they are not spaces for women to be trafficked or exploited. And this is something we constantly need to work on um, and improve. But technology is actually a great facilitator uh, when we when you have the scale of of um, sort of going after some of the bad actors here. Um, so that's something that has come up with women's security and in my world. And, and I'll just add, because NDPI has a very significant peace building program, just the importance of having women involved in those peace building chapters and involved in those conversations and interventions. And um, that the dialogue around peace and stability just can't happen without women. So that's a really critical part of what we're doing in Nigeria as well. Another question from the audience, what steps are being taken to ensure women aren't just beneficiaries of change, but also agents of change? Anyone? Anyone? Um, just to say, I think um, all the work that we do in Vital Voices is about that, is about um, uh, providing tools that, that um, further enable women to be agents of change in whatever way they, they plan to be. So just, it's kind of like a no-brainer. <laughs> as we uh, start to wrap up here, I have a question to bring it back to SDG 5. And the goals, all of the UN SDGs are, are very lofty and broad. Um, but are there specific ideas that you have that maybe haven't been talked about or, or pushed to the forefront about making gender equality and taking it forward from the, the goals that have been set? I, I'm, I just put that out as a, as, a broad, as a broad question. What needs to happen next, I guess, is the real, the real question. I'm going to crib off our friend Justin from Plan International, who talked about mapping gender to all the SDGs. And I, I don't know why I hadn't thought about that. I thought about how energy, as, as a Chevron employee, how energy maps to all the SDGs. But really, it's true. Gender does map to all the SDGs. If, if I think about them and just go through a few of them, health is utterly critical. Um, uh, food, sort of food and hunger, women are central to both raising food, preparing food, uh, and, and everything about food and nutrition and, and decreasing hunger. Um, education, economic empowerment, every single SDG really does link to gender. So I think that it's, this conversation has caused me to kind of flip my thinking about gender and instead of looking at it as an individual goal, look at how it's really mapping to all of the others. So it's been a really beneficial conversation. Well, I wanna thank you all for being here unless there are any other questions from the audience. Uh, did anyone else, I wanna make sure I give everybody an opportunity to, to ask, but if not, Thank you all for what's been a truly enlightening conversation, at least for me. I hope it has been for you, uh, but we really appreciate you being here and we appreciate uh, Chevron for focusing on all of the SDGs through uh, this forum. So thanks so much and have a great day, everyone.